Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, featuring classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Father in heaven, we have so enjoyed, I personally have just been so encouraged so many times from this book of 1 Samuel. It's become a good friend to me. I, I hate to see it end. And I thank you, Father. I thank you very much for what you've done in this church. How many people's lives have been changed through the teachings of this book, which people would call some old historical book that isn't much good. But certainly we have learned that your word is alive and that it's still speaking and still helping us. And even now, as we go for the last time, we make this request to you that the Holy Spirit would have his way with us as we study this 31st chapter. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. The final chapter of 1 Samuel presents to us an unspeakably solemn and terrible scene. Being concerned not with David, but with the termination of Saul's earthly life. In these chapters, we have said little about him. These last few chapters, only chapter 28 has talked about Saul. But here, one or two paragraphs concerning his tragic career and his terrible clothes seem to be in place. This chapter, my friends, is full of doom and gloom. It just hovers over chapter 28 and chapter 31 because you're seeing a man that has rejected God. And something that um, is true, if you want to get an absolutely direct statement from God about his view of Saul, listen to this. It's from the prophet Hosea. And in the prophet Hosea, God says first person about Saul this, I gave them a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. Now, 1 Samuel has been a book about theocracy, going to a monarchy, Israel being led by God, instead now being led by a king. And so it's a crucial one in the study of the Old Testament. And also, we know that it's a unique study of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We get great insight into sin and the effects of the human heart. I cannot tell you how much delight has the Holy Spirit has brought to me as I have laid in bed discouraged over my own sinful life and to see that, there, that David was also sinful and God didn't give up on him. And I can't tell you how, encouragement, how encouraging that was has been to me over time. This book has, has just been something I've meditated and thought about and just thoroughly enjoyed and loved it. And it shows us the development of the prophetic office. Remember, with the death of Samson, that's the book of Judges, Israel is disunited and leaderless. And so there's a poor corrupted priesthood with little direction going on. And then we get the major focus of First and Second Samuel. You see, the first seven chapters deal with Samuel. He comes on the scene. Remember, his wife, or his mother, excuse me, gets pregnant, and, and she's all excited because it's her firstborn, and she gives him up to the priestly ministry. And then Saul comes on the scene in verses 8 through 14. David has now been the main character and continues through 2 Samuel. Dale Ralph Davis, the man I mentioned earlier, gives us this major breakdown of the book of 1 Samuel. As you can see, a prophet from God's grace, Samuel, a king in God's place, Saul, and a man after God's heart, David. Now, having said all of those things, let's get into the text and get ready because it, I'll tell you, I did find something encouraging to bring, but this is dark times. There's a, there's a, there's a, the feel you get as you keep working with the text is this rejected king may not be with us in heaven. Now, watch what happens in verse 31, chapter 31 and verse 1. Let's read along. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. 
The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and his men died together that day. Several things you need to remember. The events of chapter 31 are taking place simultaneously with the events of chapter 30. But please remember that. Here's what we mean to say. At Aphek, David was with the Philistines and their five garrisons. Remember, the four generals said David can't go, so they sent David back to Ziglag down here. The Philistines go into this Gilboa Jezreel, the Valley of Jezreel area, to fight the Israelites. Now, as David is down, he comes back to Ziglag. What does David find in Ziglag? But, but the town has been burned and that the Amalekites have destroyed it. So David heads farther to the southwest to receive back his wife and his kids, remember? And all the plunder. And they got all of it back. Now, while he is beating the Amalekites, the Amalekites, Saul is losing to the Philistines. This, these two battles are taking place at the same time. Now, my friends, there's an irony here that the writer wants you to see. The writer wants you to see that while David is fighting the Amalekites, that's the very people that Saul was supposed to destroy, and that sin is still held against him, even on the, the Samuel gets raised from the dead and says that sin is still being held against you. His sin was not forgiven by God. And while that is going on, while he's fighting the people that Saul was supposed to wipe out, he's being wiped out by the people he was supposed to destroy. If you ever knew a guy that had a clear purpose statement, it was Saul. The purpose statement of Saul is this, you shall deliver my people from the Philistines. And so the irony, he didn't wipe out the Amalekites, now David is. He didn't wipe out the Philistines, and now the Philistines are wiping him out, is the way this begins. So the writer begins, by the way, with the, the NIV doesn't bring this out, but the writer begins with the progress, the battle already in progress. The battle is already taking place as we enter this chapter. And the Philistines, the constant enemy, is, is attacking Israel on this Mount Gilboa. And a couple of other things you need to remember is this. If you can see, and it looks a little better on the, actually up on the wall than it does on my overhead here, but I want you to notice that the dark areas represents the mountains and the light areas represents the flatlands. And the light areas is where the Philistines want to fight and the dark areas is where the Israelites want to fight. And the reason is the Philistines have chariots, some 3,000, and Israel does not. And so it's a great advantage for them to fight up here in the plains. And here's what's done. Saul has so missed his purpose, he's tried to wipe out the Lord's anointed for so long, he has so resisted God for so long, that while he's chasing David all over the south, the Philistines are moving into the north. You can't see. what. And his whole purpose was to beat off the Philistines and to get, deliver them from Israel. And because of that, his failure, it shows you what can happen. The Philistines are moving. Look how far. This is the farthest northern Philistine city. But look where they're taking battle. Way up here, deep into Israelite territory. And so the battle takes place. Now, if you'll notice... In verse 2, Jonathan dies along with Abinadab and Malkishua. There's one other son that will come along later in 2 Samuel, which I don't think we'll be studying, but uh, he comes along later. And then notice down to verse 3. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. The battle is going on, and, and most likely the way the battles took place in that day, Saul saw with his own eyes his sons. There goes Abinadab, there goes Jonathan. There goes Malkishua. Down they went. He probably they're fighting together as a team, and they're in close they're in close uh, quarters, and they've pushed this 
battle, so they're going now. He gets killed on the side of Mount Gilboa. So the Philistines have wiped out Israel in the valley, and they're now heading into the mountain, heading east into the territory. And he sees his own sons die, and then the arrows start hitting him. And what the Hebrew actually says, and it's really fun with this computer that the, this guy got me, it's really fun to do the Septuagint, because I can read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and I can read Greek, I can't read Hebrew. So I can read, and by the way, that's what they, when they read the, in New Testament times, they took more from the Septuagint than they did from the Hebrew. So I can see what they did, and you know what it says? The word Eureka, where we get the word Eureka, it's that word that's found here. The, 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 the arrows found their mark, Eureka, and, and, and they, they made their mark. And the, the, the arrows are falling, and they're hitting Saul. I'm just imagining the way it sort of seems to be described. They're hitting him in the legs and in the arms. So he's not going to be able to get away, but he's still alive. And so what does Saul say? Look at this. If you're a Hebrew in that day, reading this text, you would go, you would gasp, because Saul wants to do the unthinkable. Saul wants to commit suicide. Look what he says in verse 4. It says, Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his other sword, his own sword, and fell on it. Now, friends, several things I want you to notice. Number one is the armor bearer, very loyal. Remember, you're going to see Uriah in the, in the next, in 2 Samuel, if we ever study that book, you would see Uriah being very faithful to David and to the armor. And the armor bearer is very faithful to Saul. Me, my job is to, to guard your body. I would never lay a hand on your body. No way would I ever kill you. No, I'm not going to do it. And the arrows are sticking and the arrows are flying and they're finding their mark. Then Saul, and by the way, a little thing I think the writer is playing with our minds a little bit here because who used to be David's armor bearer? Excuse me. My language is terrible today. I can't grab it. Who used to be Saul's armor bearer? David. Thank you. I gave you the hint. Got it. All right? That's who used to be. So it was David was his armor bearer, and you sort of wonder, maybe things would be different if Saul hadn't been so jealous, huh? Maybe things would have been different. So the armor bearer is terrified and won't do it. Saul takes his own sword, and he, and he falls on it because notice back in verse 4, lest these men come and abuse me. Now, you see that word abuse? That is very interesting. He was afraid of being abused by the Philistines. In other words, they would capture him wounded, and they would abuse him. This is the same word found in the book of Judges. When the man went into the city at night, and the group of homosexuals banged on the windows, and they said, let this guy out. You remember? And they wouldn't let him out, so he let his concubine out. And it says in the text, they abused her all night, and she lay dead at the door in the morning. You remember that? Same word. So Saul was thinking, if I, if they get me in this condition, they're going to do something awful to me. So he was scared to death. So he falls on his own sword and he commits suicide. Now, down if you'll notice verse 5, when the armor bearer sees that Saul's dead, he falls on his sword and dies too. And so prophecy is fulfilled that Samuel had predicted in 1 Samuel 28, the judgment of God was going to fall on Saul. And this is what made Saul so terrified because he knew, I believe, he wasn't going to be going to heaven and the judgment of God was falling on him, and he, he passed the point of no return. He'd resisted God for so long in his life. And what does he do? He falls on his sword. Now, watch this. Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day, just as the Scriptures came true. In fact, if you want to know, in this gloom and doom, the any hope that you have at all, the only hope you can get so far is this. You go, well, the only thing I can see good coming out of this chapter is that God's Word is true. He can even use Philistines to kill Saul to bring judgment upon, his, upon King Saul. And that's about the only good thing you've seen is that God's word comes true in this dark hour. Now, let's go to verses 7 through 10. Watch what happens next. You think things were bad? Could they get worse? Yes. Total dishonor to Yahweh. Watch this. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled, 
and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. Now what we mean is this, friends, look. Here's the valley, and up on the hills, you've got to remember, you could watch this battle. This is not like you didn't have to turn on CNN to see how we were doing. People would line up on the hills, and they would watch what was going on. It says people all the way over to the Jordan River could watch some of this battle, and they can see our guys are gone. That's bad news. And they start to retreat. And what it means is, is that the Philistines start pressing into the land. Now to the, they're in the northwest part of Israel. Now they're pressing to the northeast part of Israel. So gloom and doom again. Now verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Oh, look what happens now. They come along, and Israel would do this too. After a big battle, there's bodies slain. And what do you do the next morning? You've been fighting until late at night. You go home and rest. And the next morning you get up and you strip off the jewelry. You empty the wallets. You take out the swords and the extra armory. You take anything that you could possibly get and you take it as plunder. And each soldier is getting what he's got, and they're just greedily, just get a bunch of vultures going over the bodies and turning them up. And they come along and they see their Saul. Now Saul would be recognizable being taller than everybody else, and also being in some kind of king's uniform that he had changed out of. Remember, he changed to go to the witch of Endor into the old uh, lay garb earlier, and he changed back in, in this fighting. And they realize that it's Saul, and they plunder. But notice what they do. They cut off his head. Now why do you think they cut off his head? Look at verse 9. Why do you think they do that? Does anybody remember what anyone did to Goliath when Goliath fell? Goliath's head was cut off. And the Philistines all saw that and they fled, do you remember? And I think that's the way of their saying. They knew Saul was there that day. And, and remember, even though David had won, it was still considered Saul's victory when, when, because Saul was the king. And so it was still considered a, a major victory for Saul. And here they are and they cut off his head. Now get, get else what these ruthless people do. They cut off his head. They stripped his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple. Now, again, I want to tell you that what it's saying in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what it's saying is here, they sent apostles, apostolone. They sent apostles out with preaching the gospel. That's what it actually says here. They sent out apostles preaching their gospel. That's what the words say right here. This is the same words we'd use in the New Testament for apostles and gospel are here. They send out their apostles, get this, their messengers throughout the land, that's apostles, throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news. There's euangelia, there's the gospel, to announce the message of victory. That's what preaching the gospel is, by the way, to announce the message. They do their own little pagan version of it, okay? They're doing their own pagan version of it with Saul's head cut off. And their idols among the people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Oh, this is interesting, isn't it? Saul did not want to be dishonored, but what does he do? He finds himself with his body naked, his head cut off, and nailed to the wall of Bethshan. You can see where Bethshan is. They've gone that far now, and they've taken over the temple there. And there they are in that city, making it into a pagan idol, a pagan temple now. And there they've got Saul's naked body nailed up there on that wall. They take the armor, and the text is very difficult. Different translations will read different ways here. The whole point is it's not going to change a whole lot about the way you're going to live your Christian life. But I, I, I will tell you this. That the, the difference being is there's one theory that all throughout the land of the Philistines they sent um, these bodies of Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua along with the armor of Saul, and they would have a big celebration in all of their temples at all of their major cities, a Apec, Gath, and Ziklag, and different places like that. Ziklag wasn't a major city, but they would have these major celebrations. Ah, oh, look at our God is better than your God. That's what they would say. 
and there was a big victory that Dagon and Asherah and Baal had conquered Yahweh. And you better believe they saw this with all of their heart. This was the message that they were proclaiming. So there, Saul was left with his body on the wall of Beth Shan. What a dishonor. What a sham. What a shame. What a, what a sad note. So look what happens. Verses 11 through 13. And here's our last verses. And you know, I'm sort of proud of the fact that we will have covered every single verse in these books when we finish here. So hang on just a few more. Here we go. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Beth Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. Friends, here's Jabesh Gilead right here. It's 13 miles as the crow flies to Beth Shan across the Jordan River. These valiant men were in tremendously good shape. At nighttime they leave. They cross the Jordan River. They sneak into the town that is now Philistine-occupied. They grab the body of Saul and the bodies of Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua off the wall. They take them back to Jabesh Gilead and they burn them, meaning this. These bodies had been mutilated. Saul's head was cut off, but there was also a lot of other mutilation that these pagans would do to the bodies that they would do to mock them. And they had these bodies mocked and nailed up to the walls. They take them down, they bring them back, and they burn them because the bodies are already starting to decay. And the, way, the thing that was important was the bones. And so they would take the bones and they bury them under the tamarisk tree. Does anybody remember anything about a tamarisk tree in this room? The tamarisk tree is where Saul was holding court when he held his spear the day that he killed the 85 priests from Nob. Do you remember that? And Doag came and slid them through. That was under the tamarisk tree. Remember Saul always had a sword? They bury him under that tree up here in the northern part of Israel. Later on, by the way, chapter 11 or chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, David orders the bones to be dug up and to be buried back in the family tomb in Jerusalem. Um, if that's going to help you live your Christian life, I'm sure it will too, but I just thought I would pass that on to you. All right? So, um, there's our passage. There it is. There's our passage. Oh, no, 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 no. I forgot one thing here. Look, look. Did you ever wonder why was it the people of Jabesh Gilead? Why them? Why did they, of all people, go over, make that trek, and risk their lives to get those bodies off the wall? You want to know why? Because in chapter 11, right after Saul had been anointed king, the first thing he ever did is he's out riding his plow. Doing Remember, he was a farm boy, and he was out riding his farm boy plow. And he came back in town one evening, and everybody in town was weeping. Do you remember? And he says, why are you weeping? And he was in about this area here. And they go, because... The people in Jabesh Gilead have been surrounded by Nahash, the eye-gouging king. Now do you remember? Were you guys here for any of this series at all? And Saul, the Spirit of God, came upon Saul, rushed upon him, and so invigorated him that he organized Israel quickly, and the first mission Saul ever had as king, which was a great victory, led him into Jabesh Gilead, and they whipped Nahash, the eye-gouging king, and saved the people of Jabesh Gilead. So I want to tell you, even though David killed Goliath, and even though David was very popular in the South, if they would have taken a Gallup poll as who do you want to be king, there would have been a 97-98% vote for, in Jabesh Gilead for Saul. And love shows the kindness that it can. And so these people of Jabesh Gilead went over and got him. That's why. Okay? Now, the question I'd like to ask you is this. We've done this to you every single week. But is there anything? Is 1 Samuel 31, is that, can that, can that help you live your Christian life? Now, just, now let me just one last time put this upon you. All right? Will that help you live your Christian life any more than some book you could buy at a bookstore? 
Is there anything in 1 Samuel 31 that's real? I'll tell you something, friends. We need 1 Samuel 31. It's gloom, it's doom, it's sad, but we need it. There's a message in here for us. And I want you to remember that these things were written to give us hope, to give us endurance, and to keep us encouraged. And my friends, there's a lot of encouragement that we can take from this passage in 1 Samuel 31. Now, now you may say a lot of encouragement. Well, I, I, I can't say a lot of encouragement, but we can get some encouragement, okay? And the number one encouragement from this passage comes from verse 2. I want you to look back to verse 2, and I want you to look at one little word in verse 2. And that is the word, Jonathan. Look down to verse 2 again. It says, on the third, excuse me, it says, the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers over, I'm sorry, I'm reading verse 3. Verse 2, I'm sorry. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan. Jonathan dies in this chapter. So let's try to rescue this hopeless doom and gloom chapter out of the hands of, of such gloom and doom by asking this question. I believe because Jonathan dies in this chapter, we have to ask ourselves this. I think we need to redefine the word tragedy. What really is a tragedy? Now let me explain. Is dying in battle a tragedy? Jonathan was 50-some years old, late 50s maybe. Was losing out to the enemy? Is dying young? Is having a tragic accident? Is, is dying by some gruesome disease? Is dying at the hand of killers and being cut off from years of retirement and having your body hung on the wall, is that a tragedy? You see, we hate to see him die because it was Jonathan, David's closest friend, Jonathan's, David's, or Saul's loyal son. The talented, the gifted, the humble, the godly, Jonathan's death is not a tragedy. Please listen, friends. He remained true and faithful to David. He was faithful to Saul. He surrendered his kingdom to David. He was the guy that was next in line to be king, and he gave it up for David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. Where do you find Jonathan when his dad's in the final battle of his life? Right there with his dad fighting the Philistines. And in this hopeless chapter, Jonathan was right there doing what he's supposed to be doing. So I don't think you can look and see that someone's life that gets cut off early is necessarily tragic. He knew his place, he gladly accepted it, and he lived for the glory of God. What is tragic about remaining faithful to God's calling and purpose for your life, even if that calling and purpose means death early for you? You see, a life could never be tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us and the circumstances he gives us. People say, oh, poor person. Oh, so-and-so. They, they never amounted to much. But you can't say that about Jonathan. You can say, he never got to be king. But he was faithful to his God and to his call. And this Jonathan, I believe, is a perfect example of this. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You see, you can't measure all of how someone did in life simply by when they died or how soon they died or something like that. You can't do it. You've got to stop and you've got to see, wait a minute, were they doing what God wanted them to do? Now, what is sad or tragic is, is when someone like Saul does what he does. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. Jim Elliott makes this comment. He says, we, and this has almost become a verse of scripture around here because we've used it so much. But he says, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You're no fool to gain that which you cannot keep. To, excuse me, you're no fool who gives up what you cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. Right out of his diary, he writes very prophetically. Listen to this. Jim Elliott, the guy who was martyred in 1955 by the Auk Indians. 
It says, the first time I ever watched a man die, and so it will come to me one day, I keep thinking, I wonder if that little phrase I used to use in preaching so much was something of a prophecy. Listen to this. Are you willing to lie in some native hut to die of a disease American doctors have never heard of if you're going to do it for the glory of God? And the big question of the hour is this. What is a tragedy? A tragedy is not being at your father's side, being the son that you're supposed to be. The last time we saw Jonathan was David. He had raced across to the Mount Horish, and he had encouraged him. He had gone through a great amount of effort to get there. And he says, don't worry, David, you'll be king one day. My father even knows this. And then back he was, being a loyal son to his father. You see, if we know our place in life, and Jonathan knew his place, he was not to be king, he was to be second. And watch this, if you live in that place joyfully for the glory of God, you're doing what God wants you to do. Steve gave me an old hillbilly proverb that goes like this, be who you is, because if you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. You see? (laughs) And the thing that you need to remember is Jonathan understood his place. You stop and think, if any of you would have had the chance of Jonathan, don't you think you might have been jealous like Saul was? Saul was furiously jealous, even though he got to be king for years. And here Jonathan comes along and he goes, no, look, that's not my place. God doesn't want me to be king. God wants David to be king. Then I won't be king. But there was one request that Jonathan always had. Every time Jonathan talks to David, what do you see? You see Jonathan saying this, hey, David, when you become king, can I be at your side? I want to be the number two man in your kingdom. That's what Jonathan always wanted to be, and he never even got to be that. So we need to know our place and live there. We need to understand it. And we need to ask ourselves questions. Jonathan's life makes us ask these questions. What are we really living for? And let's ask this, what really is success? Have we died to self so that the American dream of early retirement and a carefree life on a beach, what if that's not what God has called us to? What if, what if, if God's plan for us would be to cut short in life? You say, well, Kim, could it be? Would it be? Well, it certainly is. It was for Jonathan and for others. Have you given up your kingdom? Jonathan asked us from the grave this question. Have you given up your kingdom? Have you denied yourself? Have you died to self? What a testimony he has been to us in this book of 1 Samuel. He believed God wanted David as the next king, and he was committed to that cause. He also believed in the fifth commandment, honoring his father and mother, and he was committed to that cause. He was committed to being God's kind of person. Sit back and listen, because this goes against the grade of what we're used to. But just listen to many other scriptures that talk about this. Listen. Jesus Christ said this, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Paul says in Acts, I know, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I love this verse. I've shared it with you many times out of Hebrews. Whoever wrote it said this, Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. And John, in the book of Revelation, says, they overcame him, listen to this, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Oh, American Christianity, we need to hear this. We somehow think that God's plan is, you know, two cars in every garage and chicken in every pot and 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 early long vacations and just easy life and you know one of the prayers i've just made recently is lord save me from the desire to be comfortable save me from the desire to be comfortable when it starts to intervene with your will watch out because there's this call in this christian life to ease to take it easy and to just sort of add jesus to your life and keep him easy 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We're taught by our blessed Lord to pray this. Our Father, which art in heaven, you know it. How would it be thy name? See, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And we've turned it into, Lord, you bless my kingdom. And I would wish that we would so long for God's will that real success is not the American dream, but the will of God being accomplished through our lives. Not spending the last 20 to 30 years walking the beach, but being cut off in the middle of life if it be his will. So Jonathan speaks to us as a place of hope, knowing our place. I think we could add too, people are going to say, oh, here's the old Baptist coming out of them. But I think we can add too, women, if you're called to be submissive to your husbands, if this scripture means this, now I know that a lot of uh, women's groups have said that this scripture doesn't mean this, but you tell me what this scripture means. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and gave himself for her. Now somehow people have turned that around to where it's equal. But do you see equality there? in this sense of one is a head of the home and one is to be submissive, Jonathan understood that what was best for God's kingdom was for him not to be the number one man. And I'll tell you, when we understand our place, you can take that out of the arena of the home and you can put it in the arena of work. Or you're never going to be the top of the, of the row in your business. And so because of that, you can sit there and think, oh, what am I going to do? I work and work and I'm not going to do that. But you know what? If you understand your place, one of God's plans for you as an employee is to make your employer successful and to be as diligent as employee as you could possibly be and not to worry about what happens. You understand your place and live joyfully in that place for the glory of God. This, this speaks volumes to us in such a dissatisfied world where we always want to be someone else, want to be somewhere else, want to change our looks, want to change our personality. We want to do something else. We need to remember Jonathan understood his place. And we need to understand that too. Some people say, well, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. does God want you to be that way? Are you sure? And sometimes I think we start making all kinds of plans. I'm going to have this kind of car, I'm going to have this kind of house, I'm going to do these kinds of things. And you may find yourself resisting God because maybe God doesn't want you to have that. Jonathan understood that. Let's keep that in mind. Now, there's a whole other story here, though. Here's the real tragedy. Here's the real tragedy. I started off this series truly believing with all of my heart that Saul was a Christian. And I even talked to some friends about it, and I was convinced he was because some of the emphasis of the Holy Spirit's work in his life. And he did do some good things. But friends, I'm convinced that Saul's an antichrist. I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that he resisted God's will and was committed at all times to doing his own thing. And God had great mercy to use him in any way possible. Here's the real tragedy. The life of Saul, the first king of Israel. Now here is a tragedy. It really is. Saul had everything going for him. He was impressive to look at. He was a head taller than anyone else. He was humble. God gave him all kinds of encouragement to convince him that God was really calling him to be king. Remember in that one chapter, he says, you'll go hear me two guys, and they'll tell you this. Then you'll go hear me three guys, and they'll tell you this. One will be carrying this. One will be carrying that. One will be doing this. Then you'll go hear all, And all those things happened to encourage him. Do you remember that? And then he is chosen by Lot at Mizpah before all of Israel. The people shout, long live the king! And Samuel says, do you see the one God has chosen? There is none like him. He's good to look at. He was the kind of person that you wanted to be your king. God gives him a group of valiant men whose whole hearts God has touched to accompany him. Saul is out in the field, and he comes home and everyone's weeping, and he goes and he attacks uh, Jabesh Gilead and saves it from the hands of Nahash, the eye-gouging king. He comes back to Gilgal. Things couldn't be better. There's a 100% vote, and there'd been about an 80% vote for the first time, and they said, let's get those guys that didn't vote for you. And he says, no, 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 peace in Israel. And everybody was for him. Things couldn't have started off better. He was even humble. 
The first time they call him as king, he's hiding in the baggage. But oh, how things went bad. Oh, how things went bad. In chapter 13, Jonathan has to attack Geba because Saul's sitting around doing nothing but growing in fear. His troops are remaining in Gilgal, quaking in fear. For seven days he's waiting, and they're hiding in caves and in cisterns and in pits and among rocks, and everyone's scared to death. And Samuel has specifically said, you wait until I come to offer the burnt offering. On the seventh day, you couldn't wait any longer because he's impulsive, Saul, the opposite of being controlled by the Spirit, which is self-control. Impulsively, Saul grabs the offering, and just as he offers the burnt offering, Samuel shows up and goes, you have acted foolish, you fool. What have you done? Again and again, you see Saul being impulsive. Jonathan is wiping out the Philistines, and Saul makes a rash vow. Anybody who eats today is going to be cursed. And then he takes up his own son, Jonathan. All right, Jonathan, as surely as God lives, you're going to die today. And all of his men wouldn't do it because he realized what a fool that he was. If you haven't been with us for all this, I'm trying to catch you up, but you may remember all these scenarios that we worked through. And then his final downfall. The word of the Lord came and said, go to the Amalekites, wipe them out. Don't leave any of them left. Don't take any spoils. And what does he do? The people say, ah, let's have the spoils. Look at it, it's so rich, it's so good. Let's have the spoils. And here's what Samuel says, you have rejected God, and now God has rejected you. Is that enough? That's the sin that's never forgiven. God, Samuel brings it up the night of his death. It still hasn't been forgiven. But I'll tell you something else. It's not over. He grows afraid of, Samuel is so afraid of maniacal Saul that he's afraid to go anoint David. Saul is afraid of Goliath. Saul grows jealous of David. Saul is open about killing David. And there's all kinds of anger. He throws a spear at his own son trying to kill him. He throws a spear three times at David trying to kill him. He's, he's acting crazy and maniacal. And the, the whole court is upset. And they say they realize an evil spirit is tormenting him. And then he takes 85 priests of the Lord and he kills them all at Nob. He takes them to the tamarisk tree and kills them all under the tamarisk tree. David gets so discouraged because Saul keeps David keeps sparing Saul's life, and then Saul keeps saying, "Oh, David, you're so righteous. You're more righteous than I. Don't worry, I'll give up." And he goes around the one side of the mountain and comes back to the other. And then, of all things, Saul commits suicide. So, friends, the writer wants you to see the irony of it all. His purpose, if you go back to chapter 9 and verse 16, his purpose was to wipe out the Philistines, to deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines, and yet he dies at the hands of the Philistines. He failed to obey in regard to the Amalekites, and David's killing off Amalekites at the same time. He spends his whole life, if you ever want to get a picture of a man who resists God, I was thinking even this, I'm sure there's no theological reason, but I was thinking no wonder God changed Saul's name to Paul in the New Testament. Because if you want to see a guy that just resisted God on every single move he made, except at the very beginning, it's Saul. Listen, Saul is so hardened that even when about to die, he is more concerned with not being abused and mocked or tortured by the Philistines than his soul being right with God. He never thinks biblically. You keep Saul, keeps thinking rationally. He keeps planning against God, and God keeps keeping him in check. And listen to this. He says this finally. I will sin by committing suicide to avoid shame. In other words, selfishness reigned even in his life. And by the way, that kind of selfish living does not work. He still gets mocked as he gets hung on the wall of Beth Shan. Death by suicide climax, climax to life lived in rebellion against God. I want to read what, it's a little paragraph here, and, and you've been good, paying good attention, but I want you to read this paragraph this scholar writes because I think it helps put it in perspective. Listen. From God's point of view, suicide is self-murder. It's a gross sin, and it's a clear breach of the Sixth Commandment. 
Of the four instances of suicide in the Scriptures, Saul, Ephithophel, Zimri, and Judas Iscariot, not one is, as A.W. Pink puts it, extenuated by ascribing the deed to insanity. Those who sadly take their own lives while in the grip of mental illness are not true suicides in any ethical sense. Let no one think that any and all suicide is an unpardonable sin that ushers the soul directly into a lost eternity. In all of the biblical cases, as in all true self-murder, wicked men perished in their sins by their own hand. And that kind of suicide is, as Herman Hakishima wrote, principally rooted in enmity against God and hatred of the position in which God has placed man. And this was Saul. The suicide is not a brave man, but a wicked coward who has not the moral courage to stand and function in the position in which God has placed him, and who simply removes himself from that position to open his eyes in hell. In fact, if I have to do any less convincing of you, I think this will convince you that Saul will not be in heaven. In fact, this is the same, this is First Chronicles chapter 10, in which it's exactly the same chapter as 1 Samuel 31, except it's got these verses added. This is the exact same chapter. The Chronicles, Chronicles the same matter. And he says this, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. The same ominous gloom. You see, Saul never understood that the ultimate test of all kings is not who they serve and what do the people think of them, but the ultimate test of all kings is are they living first and foremost for the living God? The last thing we'd ask then is this. The last application point. I wonder, I'd like to count up all of our application points. I'm sure we'd have a couple hundred. But the last one then, very practically, is ask this. All this makes us ask this question. Who are we living for? We need to ask ourselves this question, really. What would be said at the end of your life? Who are you living for? Stop and think about it. It makes me so mad. As Steve led us in that worship this morning, so many of those songs about the greatness of, of salvation and all, it just brought it out of me. It just it helped renew my mind. I, I, I am too much, I get too focused on negative things too many times. But does your life bring honor or shame to the Lord? At the end of it all, what will have been said? What is a tragedy, friends? The greatest tragedy of all is to stand before God on the judgment day and your life to have been the shambles because you just live selfishly. Is it all about what you want or is it about you fitting into God's program? Honoring God. Bill Ralph will close with his comments. He writes this, There's a striking example of this passion for God's honor in the life of Esther Edwards Burr. Esther, daughter of Jonathan Edwards, had been bereaved for her husband Aaron, father of the infamous vice president. He was a bright and shining lamp of the Spirit, president of Princeton College, and cut off at the age of 41. Esther's sorrow was mixed with anxiety and a holy worry as she wrote to her parents, Oh, I am afraid... I shall conduct myself so as to bring dishonor on my God and on my religion that I profess. No, rather let me die this moment than be left to bring dishonor on God's holy name. I am overcome, I must conclude, with one more 
with once more begging that as my dear parents remember themselves, they would not forget their greatly afflicted daughter, now a lonely widow, nor her fatherless children. And that is what matters, whether it involves the church as a body or an individual believer, whether it's in Mount Gilboa or in Indianapolis, Indiana, whether those around are Philistines or Baptists, the honor of Yahweh must be at the top of our agenda. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jonathan as example and help us to live like Jonathan. Help us to be people that are really to be pliable and to fit into your program and not to be people that are demanding our way. And Father, help us to learn from the life of Saul. I'm sure if we could ask Saul, there was one thing he would want us to learn, and that is, don't do as I did. And so I pray your Holy Spirit might bring conviction now. In Jesus' name, amen.